Welcome to this episode of Outspoken Oncology. I am your host, Shadi Nabhan, and I'm a medical oncologist and hematologist with interest in all aspects of healthcare delivery, treatment, leadership, mentorship, and policy. Folks, today you are in for a treat. Look, I mean, many of my listeners are uh, maybe reviewers to journals, maybe they are authors of articles or aspiring to be authors for articles, and they've submitted papers here and there. We've all had our share of papers that were rejected and hopefully some papers that were accepted. And I really wanted to have some time with the editor-in-chief of JAMA Oncology, a journal that is only five years old, but has demonstrated significant clout in the oncology world with uh, using a variety of metrics. But really the goal of this podcast is to better understand what does a day in the life of an editor-in-chief of a major academically oriented journal look like? What does it take to be an editor-in-chief? What are the attributes of an editor-in-chief? How does an editor-in-chief deal with disgruntled authors? You know, look, we are the authors of this paper, so we think this paper is the best paper out there, but it may not be. So how do we deal with that? How does an editor-in-chief deal with a paper that he or she thought it's a good paper, but then it turned out to not be so good uh, after it was in print and a lot of backlash on the paper like this. And, you know, so I think there's a lot of questions that are important and I couldn't be more fortunate than having Dr. Nora Desis, who is the editor-in-chief of JAMA Oncology since the inception of JAMA Oncology in 2015. She is the Helen B. Sloanacker Endowed Professorship for Cancer Research. She's a professor in the Department of Medicine, the Division of Oncology, and the Director of Tumor Vaccine Medical Oncology. And Nora has been the Editor-in-Chief of JAMA Oncology since 2015. By the way, in full disclosure, I am on the editorial board of JAMA Oncology. I do not get paid for uh, my role on the editorial board. Uh, but in disclosure, I do serve on the editorial board and have served on the editorial board of JAMA Oncology since 2015. So I've invited Nora to join me on today's podcast, talk about her experience, how she got the job, how did the interview look like, what does she do, how does she reject papers, why, and just really all kinds of questions that you as an author or a reviewer, you really want to know from the editor-in-chief, how they view your work when it is being reviewed. Before I air the episode that I taped with Dr. Nora Desis, the editor-in-chief of JAMA Oncology, I'd like to ask you to find our show on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google Play, all podcast outlets that you possibly could put your hands on. If you have a few minutes, please write us a brief review, give us the number of stars you believe we deserve, and let us know how we are doing. You can always send me a direct message on Twitter at Shadi Nabhan, that's at C-H-A-D-I-N-A-B-H-A-N, or send me an email to cnabhan1968 at gmail.com. 
And without further ado, Dr. Nora Dieses, the Editor-in-Chief of JAMA Oncology, exclusively on the Outspoken Oncology Podcast. Well, it's really a pleasure to host Dr. Nora Dieses with me on today's podcast. I, I have been so much, I've been looking forward to this conversation for months, actually. Uh, Nora would attest how many emails I bothered her uh, to, to get her on this show, but I'm very, very grateful for, for her time. And uh, we're going to talk a lot about her career, but also about her life as an editor-in-chief of JAMA Oncology, um, a wonderful um, publication. I'm biased because I do sit on the editorial board, but we're going to take that away and talk a little bit about a lot about life as editor-in-chief and COVID science and a lot of other things. Uh, Nora, w- w- welcome to the show. I really appreciate your time. Um, just a little bit about you. I mean, obviously, before you became editor in chief, you have you do a lot of things, but a little bit about your background and and your research interest and and what you do outside of JAMA Oncology. Well, thank you for having me on. And uh, basically, I am a longtime tumor immunologist, so I trained in internal medicine. Um, had a lot of research experience from medical school and undergraduate. I really was determined to have a lab-based career. So I went to the University of Washington, Fred Hutchinson Cancer Center for Oncology Training, had a graduate work in immunology, and so wanted to become a tumor immunologist. And I was very fortunate to train in the laboratory of Matt Cheever, who was interested in, at that time, which was you know 25 years ago, asking the question whether common solid tumors were capable of stimulating the immune system. And from that work, I ended up getting very interested in the identification of tumor antigens and the development of cancer vaccines. And over the years have published a lot um, translationally going from the bench to the bedside And then most recently, I've become the director of UW Medicine's Cancer Vaccine Institute. And so the Institute is really focused on vaccine development for a variety of different diseases, not just cancer. And my particular interest now is figuring out whether you can develop vaccines to prevent the development of cancer or um, to modulate high risk types of a, a microenvironments to prevent malignant transformation. So it's lots of fun. We do clinical trials and basic research and it's just a passion. And then several years ago, as if you were not busy enough, somehow the issue of uh, launching uh, a new journal, JAMA Oncology, came about and you became editor-in-chief of, of that. Can you take us just through that process, how did this come about? You know, what was the process like, you know, as you explored that opportunity? Well, I, I've always been interested in translational research and I'm an avid reader. I read lots every day. I just read a lot of a lot of different things. And I was an ex-chief resident. So I think that phenotype where 
you love a little bit of everything. You're constantly across all medicine subspecialties. That's kind of my phenotype. And that's a bit of the phenotype of the translational researcher. You have to know a little bit about everything. You're not fully consumed by one molecular pathway. Many years ago, the, the Journal of Clinical Oncology under the leadership of Dan Haller was very interested in the advent, Dan was very interested in the advent of biomarkers and molecular medicine, and he wanted to broaden the JCO in terms of translational science. And so I think he asked several people to come on and be this translational science guy at the JCO. And uh, one of the people who said, I don't have time to do it, recommended me. And uh, Dan called me and he talked to me and uh, I said, sure, I'd love to do it. Uh, and then I started working for the Journal of Clinical Oncology kind of as their translational person. And I really fell in love with editing. Um, for many reasons. One of the biggest reasons was being able to read papers before anyone else. I mean, months before anyone else. And I can't tell you the joy of reading a paper and saying, this is it. This is important. This is going to mean something. Even if it's, you know, some of the original biomarker papers of looking at different mutations or, you know, tumor infiltrating lymphocytes came through the JCO and I was the first one to read them. And I'm like, this is going to get published. This is so important. So I learned a lot at the JCO and my, my time there was coming to the end. You can only have 10 years. And um, I got a phone call from Howard Bachner. And, and he said, you don't know me, but I'd like to talk to you about a new journal we're thinking about. Someone told me that you'd be a good person for it. Will you come out to Chicago and, and talk to me? And of course, they were talking to a lot of different people. And I went out. What year was that? Do you remember? Five years ago. Okay. So... 2015 at the at the end of in, in 2014 because the journal had hadn't launched yet um, so I went out and and went to JAMA which I didn't realize was such a massive operation um, and of course meeting Dr. Bachner it was like a dream to be able to sit down with someone like that in their office and talk about editing and you know, he has such a, a giving personality and really makes you feel at ease. And I, I really could see that working with him, if I was able to get this job, would, would take my editing skills to the next level. So we talked about a lot of things. What would be my vision for GM Oncology? And and of course, one of the things that really, I think is overwhelming for people is there are so many journals, right? You, you cannot read so many journals. And I said to Howard, I would like to publish a journal where people tell me once they read it, that this is the only journal I need to read. It, you know, from a clinician standpoint, it gives me my practice changing papers, 
It gives me an outlook on the new science, you know, so it's not a mouse journal. It's not going to be a mouse journal or a preclinical journal. It's a clinical journal, but it brings translational science to bear as well. Um, so it's really the panoply. It's going to be the one journal that people say, if I can only pick one, it's going to be JAM Oncology. And, and we talked a lot about that. And, you know, he called me up a couple of weeks later and he said, if you want the job, you can have it. And so um, it's kind of in my ballywig. I love starting things new, not walking into someone else's shoes. And so I really looked for an editorial group that had experience, but were also not afraid. So if something new is coming along, or especially for our viewpoint section, if someone's going to say something super controversial, they're, they're not afraid to talk about things that we should be talking about. And so that was kind of the group I was looking for. And, and fortunately, everyone I asked the first time said, yes, we'll join you. And that's how we started. And I'll, I'll get into that in a little bit. I'm curious when you were talking to Howard Nora, I mean, you're sitting with him and, and uh, I totally agree with you. I, I'm, I'm a big fan and um, he has a, he has a, I would say Howard has in the beginning an intimidating presence, but he makes you feel at ease right away. I think he knows that, that and it's within five, 10 minutes. Uh, when I first met him, I felt at ease right away. But I guess, did you feel that, um, that, he was interviewing you was there did you feel you were like in an interview type of thing was the casual yeah. conversation was the other people involved i guess in that day you spent in chicago where you met other people as part of an interview schedule type of thing i met other people while i was in chicago but the main part of the interview i feel was with howard and i think howard was looking for a type and this is the type you cannot spend one second with Howard Bachner not to feel his love of science. He has a, an incredible joy in creating that journal, working with authors, and a passion for the science. And I think that that was our connection because that's how I feel. Like when people say, you know, is it really, how do you fit JAMA Oncology into your workday? JAMA Oncology is- That, that is going to be my next question, exactly. Yeah, it, <laughs> you know, I, I think a good editor, it, it doesn't have anything to do with fitting in your workday. Your JAMA Oncology is like a present I open every morning. You know, I open my queue and I see how many papers I have in it and what they're about and it's it's the best way to start the day it's like having a breakfast full of energy that's what jam oncology is like so it's hard to say how do you fit that into your work day jam oncology starts my work day and gives me that juice that really influences 
my energy and takes me off for that day. And I think when you talk to Howard, I think that's what he's looking for in the people around him because whether you're talking to, you know, the publisher, whether you're talking to the managing editor of the JAMA Network Journals, Annette Flanagan, they all have that energy and passion for putting the best science out there for their readers that's probably true. And it's a great honor. You have this journal. For JAMA Oncology, we only publish, you know, about 120 original investigations a year. It's really an honor and a privilege and a responsibility to have the diversity of papers so that everyone has something that they want to read in JAMA, right? It's it, JAMA Oncology. So you're looking at the diversity, the quality, and the most impactful papers. So after I read a paper from an editor standpoint, looking at the quality, I take off that editor hat and I say, as a general oncologist, and you know, I look at myself as my real life is as a lab rat, but in my oncology shoes, which is a very general oncologist, would this paper talk to me? Is this something I, I think I need to know or at least be aware of? And that responsibility is really sobering, but it, it's also a tremendous honor that I think about every day I open a paper. So let, let's go over this. I mean, so you, um, you start your day by uh, whatever, you know, um, platform you have, email or a secured server, however it is, where you look at the papers that have been submitted. How many submissions in a given day you take a look at? Um, and the next question to that, um, you know, there are sometimes these papers where you read the abstract and you probably can tell this is not really right. And do you just stop there and say, I'm not going to waste my time. I read the whole paper. Or do you say, you know what, let me just read the whole paper. Maybe there's something there that was missed in the abstract. Okay. Let me um, answer both of those. So first, what is the workflow like? Well, I have workflow from two different sources. One is my email and one is a secure server for JAM Oncology. So the first thing I start out with is my email. And I uh, made a little video for JAM Oncology and I say to people in this video, feel free to contact me directly with a paper before you submit it, because I know the submission process is a big headache. I'd be glad to look at it. And I usually have four or five people contacting me directly to ask me questions about a submission, would I be interested in this, or even to send me their paper. And that to me is one of the hidden gems of being an editor, is that I see my relationship with authors as a collaboration. And a lot of times I'll say to the author, you know, uh, this is not gonna fly, and this is why. 
But just because I say no this time, don't, don't turn your back on me. I mean, it's disappointing, but talk to me again, okay? Um, and a lot of times, I think the biggest reason why papers would get rejected is that it's a variation on a theme. We've heard this before, you know, it's, this isn't anything new. It's, it's really something we've heard before. So when I go into the website and I'm reading all the papers, yes, there are some that I'll reject after reading the abstract. And there, there are two reasons why I'll reject a paper after reading an abstract. The first reason is it's iterative. And usually I say to people, this is a moderate advance over what has already been published in this area. So if, um, you know, there's been a big paper about Medicare and how that influences the way people use the healthcare system uh, that we've published, we'll immediately get a bunch of papers about the exact same topic in small cell lung cancer, in uh, renal cell cancer. In, and I say to people, there's nothing wrong with this, but I can only publish 120 papers a year. Uh, and this, this is the exact same result from the big paper that looked across you know, five different cancers. So I'm, this is not gonna make it here, but you should send it to a health services journal. So that's the number one reason. It's already been published and this is a slight twist. Nora, can I ask you where the 120 um, came from? And like, what, why not 130, why not 110? Is that an arbitrary number or how, like, how did this come about? Yeah, well, JAMA Oncology currently is a print journal. And we've had a lot of positive feedback about it being print and many people like print and we send out the print issue to thousands of people um, across the United States. So being a print journal uh, limits you because you can only have so many pages, right? The more pages you have, the more expensive the journal is. Um, that's why journals like um, JAMA Network Open can publish many more papers because it's all online. So currently, uh, JAM Oncology is limited by the fact that we do come out and print. Um, so we publish 11 to 12 original investigations a month. You know, I think that there is a lot of room for papers that look at different disease states specifically and document that what has been found in larger studies is for that disease state. But I think those papers are better suited to a subspecialty journal. Um, mm. The second reason I reject on the abstract is that the abstract is very poor quality. It is unintelligible. I, it's got misspellings in it. It's, you can't tell what the authors are trying to do. And I can guarantee you, if I click into the paper, the paper is the exact same thing. So um, I, I just can't send a paper out to a reviewer that is of such poor quality in the reading. Now, 
I've read abstracts like that where I'm like, I think there's something here. And I will reject it and I'll reject it with a note to the author that this is why I'm rejecting it. I think you may have something here. This is what you need to do, but I'd be willing to see this paper again. If you resubmit it as a new submission, please write in the comments section that I said you can resubmit this. So uh, that these are great tips, but so, but do you, on a given day, do you read 10 submissions, 15 submissions? I'm just trying to think the, vo the sheer volume and it, how many do you what, do? What I get in my emails and what I get submitted, I probably read 30 a day. Oh my God. Mm -hmm. Oh my God. All right. <laughs> 30 a day. Yeah. Okay. Um, and how... <laughs> I'm trying to do the math. I'm going to say some third of them, uh, you probably be able to tell like within an hour total, an hour and a half total. But I mean, some of them, where do you find the time? Um, I am a very fast reader and I just have always been. I read a lot and I've always read a lot ever since I was a little kid. Um, so... I, I read quickly, like a paragraph at a time rather than a word at a time. Um, and I don't necessarily read the whole paper. So if I'm interested in a paper, the first thing I read is the methods. Mm -hmm. So um, if someone is doing all types of associations, um, you know, I want to see a multivariable analysis. If you know, someone is reporting biomarkers on a clinical trial. I want to see whether that clinical trial was published. I mean, there are certain things that you look at in the methods that will tell you whether this is a quality paper or not, uh, especially clinical trials. We really love clinical trials at JAMA Oncology. And, you know, when the paper comes in and it says, Here's our primary objective. Here's our secondary objective. This is the statistical analysis on that. This is why we powered the study the way we did. And then you go to the results and they report their primary objective and secondary objective. And then their exploratory objectives are a small part of the paper. That's the perfect paper to me. It's an honest paper. That's probably true. But when you get a clinical trial, that they didn't meet their primary objective or their, you know, whatever. And the whole thing's about their exploratory objectives. I mean, I'm not even going to try to fix that. That You were powered for those. So go to a, another journal on that. So it's relatively easy if you start at the right place, right. knowing that your responsibility is to publish true papers to go through those papers and my rejection rate, like not even send out to review the editor rejects is between 80 and 90%. Yeah, that, that's, that's, but these are very important tips for listeners in terms of obviously um, uh, making sure that, um, you know, the paper is suitable for JAMA Oncology and looking at the methods so let's say it, uh, it passes the NORA test. It's amongst the 10 to 20% where you want to send the paper out for peer reviews. 
how how difficult it is to find the peer reviewers and i ask that because i'm sure you heard similar to what i heard sometimes the peer reviewers complain a lot that it takes a lot of time they don't get compensated for the time you know it's like you know is there any way to to have their time recognized, all of these things. So how difficult has it become to find the proper peer reviewers for a manuscript you're gonna send out? And any thoughts into the, any opinion into opportunities where some of the peer reviewers could be recognized for their time and effort? So first of all, we deal with two types of peer reviewers, statistical peer reviewers and content peer reviewers. We do not have very many problems with the content peer reviewers. In fact, I would say our biggest problem is that they agree to do the review and then they don't turn it in. Okay. So generally, which if you agree to do a review and you don't turn it in, this is the bane of my existence. And I remember who you are. In fact, we put a little red flag by your name. Um, if, if you think you can't do the review, just don't take the review, just turn it down. Um, but I think people wanna take the reviews for two reasons. Number one, um, if we're sending something out to review, it's usually worth the read, right? And number two, we work very hard in sending our reviewers something in their area. So as a reviewer, um, I've, I, I get asked to review papers all the time for other journals. And I look at the title and I'm like, this has nothing to do with what my research is. I don't even know, I know you, the editor, I know who you are, we're friends. Why are you sending this to me? And I decline it, right? So it, it doesn't take too much as an editor that if you're rejecting most of the papers, when you do get a paper, you spend a fair amount of time thinking about who a good reviewer would be for this paper. And so generally for the content reviewers, we, we can always get a content reviewer. Rule of thumb at JAMA Oncology is if our man managing editor has to come back to you and say, we can't get a content reviewer, you should relook at the paper and perhaps do your own brief re review and reject it. Because we have so few papers where content reviewers deny it that they're probably denying it if you go into their comments, they just say, I don't think you should send this paper out to review. Um, so content reviewers, we don't have a problem. And they do fantastic reviews. And we get lots of confidential comments to the editor giving us their gut uh, review. And I am not the best at this, but Lee Ellis and Charles Thomas, they always write personal notes back to the reviewers. Um, I take more papers than them, so sometimes I get too busy for the personal notes. And every year we thank our reviewers in two ways. We publish their names in the journal and we always try to invite our reviewers when we were meeting to, to our ASCO reception so that we can meet them and talk to them personally. And I can tell you honestly, 
we have reviewers who review for us three and four times a year. When they come in with their own papers, I really think twice about sending it out to review. And I can list, like right now, I could give you a laundry list of 10 people where I am so predisposed to them because of the great job they do, do to us. Um, you know, I really read their papers in full uh, to, to make a decision about it. But at the end of the day, the reviewers are doing this for the reason I edit. They get to read something months before anyone else knows about it. Now, the statistical reviewers are a different story. They have much less of a, an impetus to review except for service, right? And we do try to match statistical reviewers up with their interest, but uh, we have many more statistical reviewers just you know, denying the paper. Now, if, they, if they accept it, they'll do it, but um, it's harder for us to get statistical reviewers. So we have two uh, people on our staff. Um, they're editors. Uh, both of them are at Vanderbilt. Our senior editor is Yu Shear, who's uh, just an amazing, brilliant uh, statistician. Um, and then Faye uh, is our uh, associate statistician from Vanderbilt. And um, we go to them. We say, we can't find a statistical reviewer. Will you do the review? So they do a lot of very in-depth reviews on our papers. I mean, I think you've been probably similar to a lot of uh, journals um, and a lot of editor-in-chiefs uh, bombarded with uh, COVID papers. I did, a, I did a, an experiment, Nora, and I actually put that on Twitter. I went to PubMed and I put COVID-19. I don't know if you want to guess, but in the past six months, since January 2020, I think February 2020, until July 2020, uh, when you put COVID-19 and you could do that on your computer, 34,000, 34,000 papers on PubMed.gov <laughs> in the past six months. It's the most written about topic. So there's no way that there were really 34,000 meaningful papers out there uh, on that topic. But as a scientist and as an editor-in-chief, uh, I'm sure you're bombarded with COVID-19 type of papers from all yes. over the world. How uh, so help, help us understand how you sort out a, a situation where there's a lot of uncertainty. I mean, let's face it, there are right. some uncertainty. And, and as you answer this, you know, there are some papers that JAMA published, the, the mothership JAMA, where right. um, it got criticized also after publications and so forth. How do you deal with all of this, especially in an era where we can all acknowledge there's some uncertainty about the science? Right. If you look at JAMA Oncology, we've published less than 10 papers on COVID, research papers. I will tell you it's because the quality of them is very poor. And when I put my hat on and say, are they probably true? The answer is no. And honestly, this is particularly important for COVID papers because people are making decisions based on these papers. 
Um, should I keep cancer papers, cancer patients out of the medical center because they're more likely to, you know, uh, catch COVID and more likely to die from COVID? These are extremely important questions. And the papers that have been published do not well answer those questions. Um, I've sent, we've only, pu we've published less than 10 COVID papers. We've sent more out to review. The comments that we get back on the papers are, this paper seems like it was written in a day. <laughs> and it's, especially papers from the United States, it's like everyone took their COVID population and sat down with a group of their friends and wrote a paper and sent it to the highest impact journal they could because everyone is so desperate for information, they're likely to have it published. And I've read some papers in high impact journals that I would never have accepted at JAMA Oncology because they were poor quality, especially for papers by well-seasoned researchers, even the basic statistical methods were not followed. There was no statistician involved in the design of this paper, nor the analysis of this paper. And that, I think, is really up to the authors and the editors. You know, authors out there who are really interested in publishing your COVID populations. Cancer is difficult because you have lots of different diseases. You have lots of different treatments that affect people in different ways. And to dump them all in one big pool and make associations is very, very difficult. It's like doing um, expression array analysis or GWAS, right? We all remember in the early days of GWAS and looking at SNPs, people would come in with papers of 50 patients and say, I found a SNP for ototoxicity. And it didn't take us long to say, when you're doing that type of discovery work, you need thousands of patients because you're really looking at multiple variables, right? So when you come in with a COVID paper, making an association, and you've got your 60 cancer patients, you don't have the number of patients to correct for some of the very critical issues that may be influencing this data. And it's especially heartbreaking to see a place that, let's say, it is a COVID hotspot, and it may have 10 different academic medical centers. And in one day, I received three papers from a COVID hotspot from three different academic medical centers that are all located in walking distance from each other <laughs> that are reporting on their 100 COVID patients the same question. And I just thought how heartbreaking this is if you guys just talk to each other and pull those patients. And I know you can. You have a killer paper, but right now you've got not much. It's the inherent competition, right? In sometimes academic medicine where you want to be the first to publish this. But um, along these lines, 
I am 100% sure that you have rejected papers where, whether it's COVID or not, where the next day you got an email from the senior author or the first author contesting or contending uh, your rejection. How often does this happen? Um, and how do you handle a disgruntled author, let's say, who really knows that this piece is great, but you did not see eye to eye with him or her? Yeah. Um, so I take uh, rebuttal letters very seriously, and they're relatively common, um, especially if I reject the paper without review. And almost always we get rebuttal letters if they came in, if we allowed a revision and they get rejected after the revision. 80% uh, of those will write rebuttal letters. Um, so I try to work with the editors and say, if you're gonna ask for a revision, if you think you might reject, tell them why at the revision. Like we're asking you for a revision, but it's no guarantee. If you prep the authors like that, they know. Like I just sent out a letter for a revision and I said, I think there's something here and I'm gonna let you revise, but you really have to respond to everything and it's gonna require you to do a new analysis. And if you're not willing to do that, send the paper here or here or here. If you are willing to do that, I'm willing to read it again, but there's no guarantees. So if you do that, I mean, that helps. But when, when an author comes in and they say, they, they never are mean, I very rarely get nasty letters. What I get is a very thoughtful, I think you should reconsider, and these are the points why you should reconsider. I literally stop my workday, I go into the website. I completely reread their paper. And I, I reread it from head to toe. And in a small number of cases, I would say 10% of the time, I'll either ask for a consult from another editor or I'll say, okay, I'm on the fence on this. I'll send it out to review. So hang on, I'll send it out to review. I'll, I'll, I'll listen to your rebuttal. But most of the time, there was something in the paper that was really flawed for me, and I didn't communicate that well to the author. And a lot of times, I just use standard language when I reject a paper. I have a few, like maybe five or six set things that I say when I reject without review. So for these authors, I go back and I say specifically, this, 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 this is why I rejected the paper without review. And my reject decision still stands. And I know this is disappointing for you, but please don't take that against, just because we're not working together this time doesn't mean that we won't be able to work together in the future. And I'd, I'd love it if you still keep Jam Oncology on top of your list as places you wanna send your paper. But when people rebut, I really, I really try to answer thoughtfully their thoughtful letters. I just have a couple of more questions that are hopefully interesting uh, to listeners, maybe two or three, and I know I don't want to take much of your time. But, but one that's really interesting, I think, like if it were me, if you accept a paper and, you know, you accept it, went to peer review, and you publish that paper, but somehow post-publication, 
there was too much backlash. You noticed that a lot of readers, maybe social media, maybe letters to the editor, um, that just, you know, can, again, contesting that this was um, uh, valued or this was should not have been published. Um, at the same time, maybe, maybe you've rejected the paper and you didn't feel it has a merit, but somehow it went to a competing journal and it got a lot of praise and, and, and so forth. As an editor-in-chief, how do you deal with both of them in terms of how do you deal with the backlash? And God knows some, it's impossible to please everyone in the world. I know that. But how do you deal with that? And do you feel like you have to uh, write or defend that decision? And uh, have you had a situation where you regretted rejecting a paper because it went to another journal where it got a lot of praise and, and more attention? So for the first one, um, we've reject, I've rejected papers that have been published in excellent journals. And I, I never regret not publishing them because there, there was always a reason. It doesn't happen too often. I mean, most of the papers that we reject go to very good journals, but they're not at the level we are. And I've seen papers I've rejected uh, after review go to a journal that's a little higher than us, and we rejected them because they had a flaw. But they were sexy topics, and sometimes some journals that have are higher than we are in terms of impact, the sexy topics sometimes could trump other things that I think are more important. So I, I don't usually re have any regrets over papers that we've rejected. And the ones that have gone to higher level journals, they, they usually have been reviewed. So I know them in great detail. People write letters to the editor all the time, and uh, some of them can be very aggressive. Usually the points that they're trying to make do not change the outcome of the article. We've also had people calling for retractions of articles that whenever someone calls that the article should be retracted, we do an in-depth, they don't say retract, but they say the data is not correct. I go to JAMA and we do an in-depth post-mortem of the paper. I know one paper, the, the, the person who said this paper is wrong is heavily involved in that type of research and that paper kind of refuted that person's research. <laughs> and we made the author of that paper do many more analyses to prove that they weren't wrong. And, you know, I feel sorry for the author, but their, their data was correct. I have only had one paper so far that we've had to retract from the journal. And that was a paper that the author themselves contacted us and said, you know, I used a statistical method on this paper and, um, we had a new statistician and they were looking at our previous papers so they could do the statistical method and our new statistician found that there was a very serious flaw with the statistics that wasn't, our, the statistician who reviewed it didn't catch it. it. It was a complicated analysis, but it changed 
the paper. And we ask ourselves the question, it changed the outcome. We look at the new outcome and we say, would we still have published that? And we've had a few cases where the outcome has been changed and we say, yes, we still would have published this. And we put a note on the paper and, you know, we say the outcome has changed and it usually is a minor outcome. But in this case, the outcome was the major outcome and it validated other papers that had been published on this topic. And we, you know, said, retracted the paper. We, we told the author had come forward and um, that's the only paper where we ever I took it from the journal. And I, I can't wait to get another paper from that author because that guy is the most honest guy who came to us and said, I found this error months after it was published. Yeah, that's great. I mean, that's, that, that's the type of uh, yeah. person. Yeah, the type of people we should all be. Um, but, but usually the letters to the editor find minor variations on a theme. And they ca cause people to talk. And that's what a journal is all about, causing conversations about science. Nora, how do you measure the success as an editor-in-chief? Obviously, you want to, um, you know, you want to make sure you're successful. And we hear a lot about the impact factor. And I think I could tell you even myself, I'm sometimes ambivalent about the impact factor because it relies a lot on referencing and so forth. So I, but, but it's important. I mean, that's the world we live in. But metrics that you look for, now it's been five years since the journal JAMA Oncology that you can look back and say, we're successful, we're on the right track, and what you would want to see in that journal in the next five years to come? I do not, you know, there are metrics, and of course you can't be in publishing without thinking about those metrics, but those are not my metrics. My metrics are when I go to meetings and people come up to me and say, and literally say this, JAMA Oncology is the one journal I always have to read. That that is how I set up the journal. That's what I told Howard the very first day I met him. And so when I hear that back at me, and that is probably the most common comment I get about JAMA Oncology. I know I've done a, a good job. The second thing that tells me I've done a good job is when I go to reviews of cancer centers or reviews of programs and they're given their spiel our major accomplishments and they put up the one slide that says you know we're publishing in impactful journals and they give five examples and two of them are from JAMA Oncology I know the journal has made it and then the final thing is I love repeating authors I love authors who drop me a line. I love going to meetings and these authors call out, Nora, because we have a relationship. And the authors, the authors feel that type of closeness where, of course, they'll come up to me at a meeting. Hey, Nora, I want to ask you a question. It's that type of relationship where they're now bouncing ideas off me. And that happens by email, authors want to have a quick phone call, 
But when I'm out and about, having that tells me I'm running a successful journal, that they're starting to feel like it's their journal. And I love when people tell me JAMA Oncology is edgy. And when they say it's a journal that they have to read, they say, commonly I hear, I, I get the table of contents of JAMA Oncology and there's one article that, you know, I'm going to download, I got to read it. But as I go through the table of contents, I realize there's a lot of articles in here I want to read. Um, for instance, we just published one about the cost of parking at yep. academic would... medical centers. And within the fourth week of publication, it's already got like 15,000 views. And I've already gotten a letter to the editor about it. These are papers that there's a home for them here. And it's something that when you read those randomized clinical trials or those big health services studies, and then you see something like, yeah, why hasn't anyone ever published this before? And it makes so much sense to you. Those are the little nuggets that keep people coming back to GM Oncology. And that's the secret sauce that we want to keep putting on the Big Mac. Are you contemplating any changes or anything that you, I mean, adding sections? I mean, I can tell you that one of my favorite sections is actually the, the viewpoint. I mean, I love reading viewpoints because I do feel they're... Um, uh, they're, they, they talk about various topics and there's an opinion. I feel it's an opinion piece. And sometimes I like to read opinions. Are you thinking of other sections, other things in the next five years for listeners or submitters? Or, I mean, are you happy with the sections as they are right now? Well, the sections themselves are stable. Um, that's kind of a standard format within the JAMA Network journals. However, within the sections we have a lot of flexibility. So uh, within the viewpoint section specifically, we can do a viewpoint series. And we've done several series. We've done technology-oriented viewpoints. Uh, we're, we're starting a couple of new viewpoint series. They're usually about six or seven viewpoints surrounding a specific topic. And then, um, you know, we'll tag the topic line for each one of those viewpoints so you know you're reading one in a series. And we've also done that a little bit with the original investigations. You know, we did one uh, half of the journal about how to manage and how to image patients with Lee Fromani syndrome. And, and what do we know about that to date? We did that a couple of years ago. So occasionally we'll have a small theme going within the section, but we have a lot of flexibility about being able to put together original content. And, you know, I do put out an editorial every year where I ask our readership, if you want to see something, let me know because we will do it. We, we're a very flexible journal. And so we've got a few things that are in the works right now, um, but I want people to know, contact me, throw me some ideas. Oh, I'll, I'll, be, I'll be putting your email in the note of the podcast. I want to I finish by just asking you maybe, um, 
what kind of advice you would want to give to three types of people? One is the submitters or the authors. Um, as somebody who's done this for a long time, whether at JCO first or now, and reviewers, peer reviewers. And lastly, uh, people who probably aspire to be like you, are there specific things? Is there a is there a path towards being an editor-in-chief of, of a major journal? Um, um, any piece of advice to these three groups of people? And then I'll let you go to review more papers. <laughs> okay, so for authors, I have one big piece of advice. Please read the instructions for authors for your article type. I know it's very difficult to do, and many times the instructions are located in different places. But um, when papers come in now and they're so out of sync with what the instructions for authors are, they're like 500 words over. They've got multiple, like they're sending me nature medicine figures. I just reject them. You know, Nora, people complain a lot, though, about the submission process that, you know, why not? Why can't I just submit my paper in whatever style it is? Yeah. If you accept it, then I'll modify it. People ask well, that question all the time. Because it's all over our website and all over the Internet that you can send me your paper directly to my email, and I will tell you whether it's going to go or not go. So they have no leg to stand on with me. <laughs> I might be the easiest to find email of anyone in the United States, and people are sending me stuff all the time. So when you send a paper to Nature Medicine, and you literally plop it into the JAMA Oncology um, for, you know, submission system, and it's 4,000 words long, and our papers are only 3,000 words long, and we only allow four, four panels per figure, I literally cannot send it out to review because when it's reformatted, it's going to be a completely different paper. So please read the instructions for authors. And if you want to recycle your paper, see if the editor, you can send it to the editor. You can send it to me, period. The second is for the reviewers. And I gave this before. If you, don't, if you can't review the paper or you think you won't be able to send it back in, that's the worst thing for us when we keep tagging and tagging and tagging a reviewer who accepted the paper and now the paper is two weeks overdue and, and they're just, they say we can't, we, don't, we can't do it. If you can't do it, just say no at the beginning. Um, that's the, the best thing to do. We so love our reviewers. so feel free to say no. But if, if you accept the review, please do it. And then the last group was what, Chatty? Was, you know, is there a path to be, I mean, if somebody is listening oh. and they just love what you do and they're thinking, you know, I, you know in 10 years, I want to be editor-in-chief. Is there a path, attributes? Um, it seems that's the one thing that there's no clear path towards, right. at least career-wise. I think if you're interested in this area, you have to publish, publish, publish. You have to, it's easier for me to be an editor because I've been on the other side of it, right? And I've learned so much by um, 
there's guidelines for almost any type of paper, randomized clinical trials, uh, biomarker papers. I've read those guidelines. I understand what a quality paper is. So you have to know your craft to be able to critique your craft. So when a kid comes up to me and says, I'm really interesting, interested in editing, and they're a, a fellow, an oncology fellow, um, I say, be the, best, be the best you can be. Spend the next years learning how to do research and publishing high quality papers. If you spend all your life in the clinic and you don't publish a paper, you can't, you can't be a journal editor because you don't, you don't understand that craft. And then once you get to the level of an associate professor, then make it known that, you know, if, if you've been publishing and you have an expertise, then when you go to a journal and you say, I, I would like to be an associate editor here, you're not an unknown quantity. I, there's many people who'll send me their CV and I look at it, there's no expertise here. They haven't published a lot. They haven't published in, you know, the higher level journals. But those are the people that editors work, look for because an associate editor does a lot of things. Not only do they read and critique the papers and send them out to reviews, they're also out there trying to get good papers to the journal. That's your other job. You're out there representing the journal and going to folks and saying, submit to us. And if you don't have any there there, if you don't have any gravitas, then the second part of the job, no matter how good you are at editing, um, you can't do. I mean, English may, being a, a journal editor is not being an English major. Yeah. There, there are people in the back who are fixing the language. Being a journal editor is a content expert. And then once you become that associate director and you're seeing lots of different papers and you're reading lots of different journals, that's when you make the decision about whether you wanna do something like this, go all in. And you can start at a smaller journal and work up. If you do a great job with a small journal, you can bet that larger journals will want to get their hands on you. But you have to, you have to hone your craft to get to that position. Nora, I can't thank you enough. This, is, this was such a, such a wonderful hour I spent with you. I, I can't tell you how much I've learned from you and uh, how I value your opinion and appreciate you taking the time. And I, uh, I'm pretty sure that listeners will really appreciate your insight and your opinions. And, and what does it really look like being an editor-in-chief of, of, of an amazing journal? So I can't thank you enough. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for letting me uh, talk to you about it, Caddy. Okay, folks, thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed listening to this podcast as much as I enjoyed taping it. I totally enjoyed taping this episode. 
had a great time learning from Dr. Desis about her career journey, about what she does as an editor-in-chief, and really, it was just a lot of information that I hope you found useful. Uh, I want to know from you uh, how you think uh, I'm doing. I've received a lot of uh, uh, feedback, and I appreciate all of the email, the text messages, the tweets that you have sent my way. Please keep them coming by direct messaging me on Twitter at Shadi Nabhan, that's at C-H-A-D-I-N-A-B-H-N, or sending me an email to cnabhan1968 at gmail.com or shadinabhan00 at outlook.com. And before I let you go, I'm going to leave you with two quotes uh, because I realized I have to balance. You know, we are in an election year, so I'm going to have a quote from Ronald Reagan and a quote from John F. Kennedy, JFK. So this way, if you are listening and you are a Democrat, you'll be happy. If you're a Republican, you'll be happy. Here it goes. Ronald Reagan once said, when you can't make them see the light, make them feel the heat. And JFK said, Leadership and learning are indispensable to each other. Thank you. Until next time, please stay safe.